We are here uh, as a part of worship. This is something that we do every week. This is central to who we are as a church, worshiping God, worshiping Jesus Christ, specifically the second person of the Trinity. And worship is this central theme here in Luke chapter 19, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus has been heading to Jerusalem for the last 10 chapters, and here he is entering Jerusalem and being worshiped and praised. I mean, these, these words that we're familiar with, this is the account that we often hear on Palm Sunday when there are these praises given. You know, uh, some of the Gospels say, Hosanna in the highest, as we have in verse 38. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then and Jesus says, if they had been silent, the rocks would cry out. That There's this incredible picture of worship of Jesus Christ. Presented by God, by Luke here in this passage, as the king, as the one that is worthy of worship. And then in these next couple of passages, we see uh, some of the other ways in which he's presented. And this question is regularly one for us to consider. Who is this Jesus that we worship uh, each and every Sunday? Um, One of the pastors in our denomination wrote this on Uh, The Gospel Coalition website is talking about all the different ways in which we are tempted to picture Jesus or that we have those around us are tempted to picture or talk about Jesus. The Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and firearms. The Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart and reducing carbon footprint and spending other people's money. The therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heal our past, tell us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. Uh, The open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for the people who are not as open-minded as us. Um, The spirituality Jesus who hates religion and churches and priests and doctrine, but he wants to find a God within listening ambiguously to spiritual music. There are a number of ways that we can think about Jesus. Uh, And as we come thinking about Jesus, the question is, who does he say he is and who does the word of God say that he is? Uh, I just finished reading a book called uh, A Man Called Ove. Uh, It's a fairly well-known book. I I saw it recommended in a number of places over a number of months. And it starts off with a picture of this really grumpy old man, this this bitter man. He's He's buying a, well, he doesn't really seem to know the difference between an iPad and a, is it a computer? And where's the keyboard? And, and he's talking to a salesman and, uh, and he's just grumpy and bitter. And that's the picture that you have. And it goes on and he's, he's committed to just one kind of car and everything done in a particular kind of way. And, and as, the, as the story unfolds, uh, you, you get flashbacks in O's life and some of the Chapters are called A Man Called Ove, and that's in the present, and A Man That Was Called Ove, uh, and things that happened in the past. And you begin to see some more of his story. You get a fuller picture of who he is. That he, uh, spoiler alert, if you read the book, you, you begin to see that he is more than just a grumpy old man. And some of that plays in. He is, is a grumpy old man, but why is he that way? And, uh, and then what, what are his redeeming values? And uh, the story begins over the course of the book to give a much fuller picture of who Ove is. And we tend to focus on Jesus in just one particular way. We, we, we often will just latch on to one thing, and, uh, and that becomes our focus of who he is. And in our culture more broadly, 
that sometimes the focus is on, um, on Jesus as maybe leaning toward this. Uh, he is one who loves us all, no matter what, all, all the time. And there is a, some, some sense in which we could say that is true. That that is true because of the kind of love he has for us. But there is also a fuller picture. And we begin to see some of that here. Who is this Jesus that we're worshiping? One of the things that we see here is what we call uh, the three offices of Jesus. And actually, since the fourth century, theologians have talked about the offices of Jesus. That is, the different roles that he plays being prophet, priest, and king. That Jesus is a prophet, the ultimate and final prophet. That he is the priest, the ultimate and final priest. And that he is the king, the ultimate and final king. Over all of creation, over all of time, he is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And that's what we're going to see here as we look at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. Those are the three points. Uh, Prophet, priest, king. Let me pray for us. Lord, I do pray that you would meet us here in all of your roles, that we would see a big picture of who you are as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. That we might worship you. That we might give glory to God in the highest because of who you are. That we might see you and also present you as that great prophet, priest, and king. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is prophet. That's the first one we'll look at. We actually see it. It's last in this passage. Really, verses 43 through 48 present him as this prophet. We're actually learning about his role as prophet through his anger. So he, he comes in, and we're, we're familiar somewhat, if we've been around the church for a while, with this picture of Jesus cleansing the temple, overturning the tables, where there are these, uh, these folks who are selling. Uh, we don't know exactly what he is reacting against, but we know some things are, are certainly true. That even as they're selling animals, for those who are traveling, this is the time of Passover here, uh, they're selling animals so that people who have traveled to worship God, who, to meet with God, they can buy those animals to sacrifice them. And that's a, that's a good thing, right? But they've turned it into what Jesus describes as a den of thieves. They've obviously prioritized making money off of other people over worship. And, and we can speculate as to some of the details of how that's happening. But the thing is clear that they have, they have made profit the priority over worship. And so his anger comes out and he cleanses the temple. He overturns the tables. We see some more of the details in other gospel accounts. This is actually the, the briefest account of the cleansing of the temple in all of the gospels. It, it's, you know, pretty, he entered the temple and begun to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of robbers. That, that's the account, but we, we, we know that this is a big deal. He is challenging the, the practices of the day. And this is the role of the prophet. Sometimes we hear the word prophet and we think it's primarily about telling the future. And Jesus is absolutely able to do that. He does that uh, in the account of the, the donkey. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. We're not, we're not assuming that he had some prearrangement. He actually knows what's going to happen in the future. So Jesus does know what's going to happen in the future. He's already said three times to the disciples that he's headed to Jerusalem to die and then rise again three days later. They don't get that, but he is a prophet in that sense. But the primary role of a prophet is to call the people of God to repentance, to call out 
sin and brokenness and call them to repentance. And there are two ways, there are two focuses that I think we we make a mistake if we don't see that both of these happen throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and that that is that there's both individual sin and corporate slash systematic sin. Both of those things are happening. That, That we as individuals are sinners and we make poor decisions. So Jesus is actually calling to repentance. And we know that in this moment where there are those that are following him and worshiping him, and some of them will turn away, some of them will continue to follow him and worship him. And so he's, he's calling for a level of what she regularly does, of individual repentance and turning to God, of turning from sin and turning to God, of looking to Jesus for forgiveness. But there's also this reality which he is regularly talking to the people of God. He's talking corporately. He's addressing the system that's happening in the temple. And so he goes in and he overturns the tables. And he's not just talking to the individuals. He's talking about something bigger that's going on here. And this is just the natural implication of if we as individuals are sinners, then the systems that we're a part of are sinful. And there, there are times which we need to, to recognize that reality. One example of that would be as a denomination over the last number of years, we have repented of racism in the history of our church. And that doesn't mean that every single one of us uh, uh, is racist, though I think we all need to search our hearts and determine the own prejudices of our individual sin and that, that plays out uh, in our lives. But uh, the reality is, as we as a church have repented of things that have happened in other churches in our denomination over history, and that's absolutely appropriate. That's a biblical theme to recognize that we hold this corporate responsibility and we should be continuing to ask those questions. What does it look like for us to to recognize uh, whether it be issues of uh, racism or other issues of of sin that might play out in our uh, our church? And, And to be clear, corporate most often, I mean, well, in scripture, it is talking about the corporate nature of sin among the people of God. And we need to be asking those questions. It's certainly appropriate to ask uh, where does sin infect uh, just systems around us or uh, organizations that we might be a part of. Uh, but we, we start with not only our own hearts uh, and our rebellion, but with the church and with the people of God. And, and Jesus is regularly calling out sin. This is probably the role of Jesus that that we are most uncomfortable with because it is a challenge to us. It is confrontational. It is calling us wrong. That's why we have the confession of sin every week and we struggle with that to actually admit certain uh, things. But we have to recognize that this role that he plays a prophet is ultimately for our good. He is placing boundaries around us that we don't always like, but they are for our good. Boundaries that are to bring blessing to us. We, we, we recognize that that plays out in normal life, even when we get frustrated when the boundaries sometimes apply to us. Have you ever gotten a speeding ticket? Um, I admit that I have. And uh, I, I didn't like it. And, uh, and there have been times I've, I've gotten more than one speeding ticket. It has been quite some number of years now. But uh, I, I thought, wait, there were other people passing me. Why did, why did I get the ticket? I didn't deserve the ticket. Or uh, this was just a speed trap to make money, and I was upset, right? But if, we're, if we recognize the big picture, our traffic laws, including speed limits, are actually there for our benefit, and we see that over the last year and a half. Um, the, there, 
well, you see that if you drive on the road right now, that it's, it's just crazy. Like, it, it has gotten way crazier. People not uh, following the traffic laws as much as they used to, as much as they used to was not quite enough. But, um, but part of that is a result of the fact that during COVID, uh, enforcement of traffic laws went way down. Actually, in Marion County, uh, ticketing for, speed, for speeding went down 91%. 91% from 2019 to 2020. Fatalities went up 31% in Marion County. And, and it's this, this reality, yeah, I don't like it when I get pulled for speeding, but the traffic laws are actually there to keep us safe. And when they're not followed, and they're not followed because they're not really being enforced because of COVID and the connection that was trying to be avoided and other things that uh, maybe took priority, and understandably so, but the result is that lives were lost. Those boundaries that I don't always like, and I think oftentimes that, uh, that I know when the exception should be applied. Uh, you know, this is the time we're speeding or, you know, cutting across this lane. It makes sense, right? Like, yeah, normally, and for other people. But we do that in our lives all the time, whether it's the way that we spend our time or our money or the way that we even work to understand what Jesus's guidelines and rules are for us, whether we give that any time at all. They're for us and for our good. The one who is the king, and we're getting to that, that's, that's point number three, he is the one who has the right to speak into our lives and say that there should be boundaries, to give us directions. And, and one of the examples of that that I think we see very clearly in this passage with this focus on worship is the importance of worshiping Jesus the king the importance of gathering his people. So at this point, at Passover, folks are headed to the temple to worship God, to be in his presence, to experience that relationship and worship him. And what happens in the middle of it is they begin to worship Jesus because they're with him. They're, they're, they, they begin to worship him. What does worship look like for us? Well, what he's given us is, if, at this moment, where is Jesus? Where is God? He is on the donkey being worshiped. So that this this impromptu worship service breaks out in the trip to the temple. And we don't have the temple anymore. We're getting to the priest next. We don't have the temple. We don't need that. Uh, we have direct access to Jesus because he's that ultimate priest. But there is a, a, a picture in which he gives us the call to gather together with his people. To not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews 10. To, uh, the, the fact that he is there in the midst of of us when two or three are gathered together in his name. The fact that right now at this moment in this passage, the body of Jesus is on top of a donkey, but now the body of Jesus is the people of God gathered together. And worship is this thing that we do every week as central to who we are as followers. It is central as a result of being created in his image and being presented with him as the king. And so we gather to present him as the king the prophet and the priest, and we worship him every week. And this is a, there's a calling for this to be a priority in our lives. And that's not to say that there won't be times that we'll, we'll miss. We're going to be on vacation in two weeks, and we won't be here. But there's a question that we should regularly ask of when we're not here, what are the priorities that are pushing this aside? What are the ways in which we uh, allow this to be a priority in our lives that shape us? Because 
Jesus is worthy of our worship. And when he calls us into his presence, he shapes us through worship of him. It's not just this thing that we offer to him. It it is absolutely that, but it is this time where we are, are shaped by him. And it should be one of the highest priorities that we experience in this life. Worshiping the prophet, priest, and king, worshiping our God, being in his presence. And the reason that we're able to do that is because he is the priest. Because he allows it, because he works, and we come and we celebrate that on uh, Sunday mornings because of what he has accomplished for us. He is that ultimate and final priest. The role of the priest was to be this intermediary between the people of God and God, between sinful people and a holy God. And so they were part of offering sacrifices and prayers to the Lord. But Jesus comes as that ultimate priest because he's the ultimate sacrifice himself. And we see the heart of the one who is willing to be sacrificed here in verse 41. When he drew near and he saw the city, he's being worshipped, right? He wept over it. The king and the prophet who is calling out brokenness and sin, who is saying there's judgment that is coming upon you. He says, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. Because he's recognizing they're not. They're not seeing the things that make for peace. And what makes for peace, he does. Jesus makes for peace. He goes on to say, this judgment is going to come upon you. And it says at the end of verse 44, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What in the world does that mean? Visitation was this language that was used by God to give a picture of his salvation. When he visited his people in both the Old and now in the New Testament, visitation was him bringing salvation. They didn't recognize the day of visitation because Jesus is saying, The day of visitation is here and now. I am that salvation. I am visiting you. I am the Lord God, the creator of all things, the king. And I am bringing salvation and you don't recognize it. And his response to that is to weep that they're not getting it. To have tears poured out out because he loves them and cares for them. This is the posture that a priest has. One who wants to draw people into relationship with the Lord with the creator, with himself, he weeps when it doesn't happen. He cares so deeply. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, we see the heart that he has. He says, all, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's, that's all of us who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the offer that he is giving to us. He's not saying it's always going to be easy, but he's saying, I care deeply. My my heart for you is gentle and lowly. And we find him here in chapter 19. He, He is weeping for his people. And he cares so deeply that not only is he weeping, he's actually going to do something about it. He is that day of visitation. He is that peace. He is headed to die. We know that's where he's headed. That's the whole point that he's been headed headed in this direction from chapter 9 of Luke. Headed to Jerusalem for a particular purpose, to die. The king willing to die 
The one who judges, the prophet, the one who's willing to call it like it is, willing to die for you and for me. We find here the father, the parent who cares so deeply. If, if you have experienced a, a, a good parent, uh, or even a parent in a, in a moment of, of beauty and goodness, if they see their child going in a destructive direction, they weep over their children and the, the pain that they're causing themselves. I, I remember, uh, uh, without giving you know, the unnecessary details, my brother was a bit rebellious in high school. And he brought destruction upon himself. He brought pain upon himself and upon others. And I remember moments of seeing my parents weep in that time. And it was because they, they loved him deeply and cared for him. And it, it is, I, like, I forget about these times. There were so many years ago, and he's so different now. But it, part of his story is the, the love that he just always experienced from my parents. But in their love, they wept when they saw him making decisions that were destructive for him. And here we find this picture of a father who weeps for us and wants what is best for us. He weeps when there is destruction that comes upon us. And so as we worship on Sunday mornings, as we worship in all of life, and you know, we, we title our announcements worship in life, that uh, life is worship because we actually believe that life, all of life is worship, but there's something significant happening here. And we're able to worship both in this important time and other times because of the work that he's done as the priest and the fact that that both enables and motivates us to worship his heart for us, his gentle and lowly heart toward us. And there's a sense also in which worship takes place on the Sabbath, on this day of rest, is a recognition that it's not about my work, it's about his work. And, and there are different ways that we treat the Sabbath, but let me encourage you for it to be, to, to set aside time, this principle of rest, and one of the reasons that we do that is not just as this rule, and this is one of the Ten Commandments that we read in the Confession of Faith to, to honor the Sabbath, is that, that rest, one of the functions is to trust in Jesus, to recognize that I rest from my own endeavor and my own work and my own struggling, to think that I have to do it, that I have to get things together. Our rest is, because our, our temptation is to not rest because we think if we do, that the things that need to happen aren't going to happen, that we're going to fail, right? One of the ways that rest plays out is it, it lives out our dependence upon God because of the work that he has done, that it's up to his work and not ours. And all of this matters, all of this matters because he is the king, because he's able to actually fulfill the forgiveness of sins. He's able to actually do something about the weeping over us. He's actually able to give answer to the destruction that we bring upon ourselves by, by allowing that destruction to be poured out upon him because he's powerful enough because he's the king. And that's the picture we have in the triumphal entry. The king, the one who is headed to Jerusalem and is worshiped. Who, th- there are all these pictures of, of kingship as they find this colt that has never been used, this, this donkey. It's this fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 that talks about uh, the king, the savior, the Messiah coming in on uh, a colt, on a donkey. And colt can uh, apply to either a, uh, a horse or a donkey. And we know from other passages that he's uh, on, on a donkey here. And, uh, and he is set upon 
the colt, verse 35. Uh, it's, this, it's almost this picture of coronation. Um, we, we see as well that, uh, that as, they, as he knows what's going to happen, and he, he clearly, we, we, sometimes I, I've, I've read some who like to explain this away, right? He had a prearrangement with the owners of this donkey. As if we need to explain away Jesus being in control of the story. He's actually been working this story through all of history. And he has certainly been working his life to head to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to die and rise again from the dead. And we feel the need to explain away him knowing what's going to happen with this donkey. He is the one who is absolutely in control. He is the Lord. So that part of the story is when he sends off his disciples to get the donkey, the the owners are going to say, hey, what are you guys doing? They're the owners. They have control of this donkey. And they say, the Lord has need of it. The one who is in control has need of it. The real owner, the ultimate owner, the ultimate king, the one who is visiting his people, the Lord. He is in control of all of it. And he is orchestrating the whole story to head to his death, working together, prophet, priest, king, all coming together. And the king headed not to a worldly coronation. And that's what the people at this moment worshiping him want. And they don't get what they want. This is often true of us. We don't get what we want. That's part of the problem that we have with Jesus is that we do not on a regular basis get what we want, but we get what he knows we need. We get what the Lord, our creator knows that we need. So he pushes against sin and he calls us away from that, but then he offers forgiveness knowing that we're going to make mistakes and he's in control of all of it for us, for the ones that he loves so deeply that he weeps over us. So he heads not to the worldly coronation, but to death. He heads to suffering and to die, knowing that that's going to accomplish for us the forgiveness of our sin, our salvation. And that draws us into the presence of the king. So as we gather on this Sunday morning, as we gather on other Sunday mornings, we're seeing Jesus presented as prophet, priest, and king, and we worship him because he is all of those things together. And that brings us life. It brings us hope. It brings us salvation. It brings us the king himself. And that is the ultimate goal. We gather together to proclaim Jesus to one another that we might experience him, that we might experience his presence, that we might experience his forgiveness. And we do absolutely do that together. And so we find encouragement. And yes, from that flows worship so that we sing of his, we sing of who he is. We sing of his glory. We sing of who Jesus is and we present him in our confessions and our songs and all of these things. We worship him together and we are changed by it. Let me pray.